Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Ops of the Opus 111 Group. We're here as we are every Saturday to talk with you about the markets and the economy to provide you some insights into what's going on out there. So hopefully you can make some good informed investment decisions. Now this week, uh, really in terms of the market, not a whole lot going on. Uh, as was evidenced by uh, what the Dow did yesterday, it closed down a whole 28 points. It was at 28,235. S&P ended the week at 34.65, the Nasdaq at 11,548. Gold settled yesterday at $1,896 an ounce, silver at 24.46 an ounce. Crude jumped up to 39.85 a barrel, the 10-year rose to 0.85%, and soft white wheat was quoted at 6.02 a bushel. So on a year-to-date basis, uh, right now the Dow is, well, call it unchanged, uh, the S&P up about 7%, and the NASDAQ higher by about 28% since uh, the, the end of the year. So, yeah, we had a kind of anniversary of sorts this past week on October 19th. That was the anniversary, anniversary of what uh, has been come to call Black Monday. Uh, we had, uh, that was the largest one-day sale in markets history. We were down 22.6% uh, that day. And I won't bore you with the war story, but it was most interesting. And uh, just to put that in context, you know, like I said, the Dow was down 28 points uh, yesterday. Well, uh, had yesterday been October 19, 1987, we would have been down 6,500 points. So I think 28 is probably better. What do you think? So ConocoPhillips this past week agreed to buy a company called Concho Resources. They were paying $9.7 billion, um, and what, what it will be, the combined company will be the largest U.S. independent uh, oil company, uh, primarily working out of, uh, or in, more correctly, Permian Basin of Texas and New Mexico. Now, companies that do everything from manufacturing phones to operating social media platforms, basically the communications kind of sector, well, they account for total all of them account for about 40% of the S&P 500. Um, and in 1999, those kinds of companies were 37%. But I think that's not exactly an accurate comparison since uh, today's companies, there's a lot more of them than there were then. Um, and now few analysts are saying that today tech stocks are not even close to being as overvalued as they were 20 years ago. Uh, FedEx and UPS have already uh, booked most of their shipping capacity in advance of the holiday. So uh, do your Christmas shopping early, it would appear. Uh, Target said that they're going to be spending $70 million on another round of employee bonuses. Uh, I think their folks will be happy like that, about that because they're paying $200 to 350,000 employees who work at their stores, distribution centers, and contact. Uh, centers. So I think that's kind of cool. And then uh, Thursday, the banks had a good day because, again, that's when the 10-year jumped up to hit its four-month high, just about where it was yesterday. Now, uh, oh, in this coming week, about a third of the S&P 500 companies are going to be reporting earnings, and that includes Apple and Microsoft. So uh, it's going to be quite interesting, I think, day-to-day -day as those earnings reports come out. 
There's also uh, a rather important economic piece coming out. It'll be the first look at how we did in the third quarter GDP. I'll be talking about that in a little while. Um, and that, like I said, nearly a third, that's about 170 companies. And in addition to Apple and Microsoft, we're going to see Boeing, Caterpillar, Honeywell, and Merck. Um, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook all uh, report after the market on Thursday. And so far, um, of, uh, well, 85% of the companies that have reported uh, are beating estimates and uh, about 20% above the long-term average. So that's good. The trend is our friend, as we like to say. Now, a couple just oh by the ways that uh, you may, if you're an investor for a while, you're probably aware of this, but it doesn't hurt to bring it to your attention. Um, is these things called capital gains distributions that mutual fund companies do annually. And over the next few weeks, a lot of them are going to be making announcements about capital gains distributions. Now, here's the catch. Uh, for those of you ho who hold f mutual funds outside of a retirement account, uh, this is, as again, most of you are probably aware, is a taxable event. And this year is probably going to prove, uh, as they say, noteworthy. Uh, mutual funds are required by law to pass through nearly all of their realized gains to their shareholders on a proportionate basis. So unfortunately, if you own 10 shares, you won't get quite as much as the person who has 1,000 shares, but it's even. So when volatility strikes, you know, and we've got people uh, <laughs> running for the door, as it were, uh, those kinds of people often uh, are uh, redeeming their shares in funds, uh, how would I say, en masse. And so that can force uh, these fund managers to sell uh, assets to raise cash because these people want money. You know, they want to sell their shares and they want the cash back. And uh, that oftentimes goes against what the portfolio manager wants to do, but you know, that's how it goes. And so in the process, the manager may realize <laughs> realize some big gains. So it's too early to say for sure just yet, but this year could have triggered a whole lot of realized gains because through our first nine months, investors redeemed, put you know, take money out, uh, $221 billion from stock mutual funds. Now that's the biggest total for the first nine months in the last 20 years. I think it's safe to say that those folks, uh, most of them don't appear to be true believers here in the market. But in any case, many of the managers raise cash and at least partially offset those gains with some losses. But, you know, let's think about it. We've had, after a nearly 11-year bull market one, it wouldn't be a shock if these redemptions did force the realization of quite a bit of gain. So if you own funds in a taxable account, this may be something you want to watch out for is the fund companies release estimates over the next few weeks. And again, this has nothing to do with whether or not the share price of the, your fund went up or down. Yeah, it's a little confusing, but be aware. Now, here's a way you can help mitigate some of those gains uh, and or when you have other um, assets in your account. And we talked briefly about this a week or two ago. It's called tax loss harvesting. And if you realize capital gains, and again, you know, you may from the funds or if you sold other issues throughout the year, then you've gotten gains. 
it may be a really good idea to review things and find other positions that you currently hold that are at a loss relative to what you paid for. Now, if that's true, you may want to consider, oh, back up. This has to happen in a non-retirement account because in a retirement account, it does you no good. So in taxable accounts only, okay? So um, realize losses in the taxable accounts can offset gains dollar for dollar when you compare long-term gains and long-term losses and short-term gains and short-term losses. Uh, or you can deduct up to $3,000 in losses per year from your income, which reduces your overall tax exposure, of course. And uh, if, your re if your realized losses, in other words, ones you've actually taken, are higher than your gains, you can carry those forward basically forever uh, to use in other years. Now, this is a, you know, a tax mitigation mover. You're not selling the dogs, which is selling a down stock, which you think is really, you know, dead. Uh, but it, it isn't about reducing stock market exposure or raising cash. It's, it, you identify stocks purchased more than 30 days ago that are at a loss. You sell them and buy something. Well, you can buy that same security back if you still think it's good after 31 days so you aren't uh, penalized by what's called the wash sale. Um, as long as you do not buy back the issue, the exact issue that you sold for a loss, you can declare that loss, um, again, if you buy back after 31 days. So the best thing to do is, of course, con uh, confer with your qualified tax professional, which your humble and obedient servant is not. but. I think you'll find that uh, most of that information is pretty accurate and you can plan accordingly. Some of the reports that came out over this past week. Uh, and uh, those reports continue to be pretty good. They continue, at least as how I read them, to show that the economy continues to recover, continues to move up in spite of all this lockdown stuff that's still going on. So um, one of these was that uh, the jobless claims in the U.S., totaled 787,000, that's initial filings, 787,000 last week. That's the lowest since just before all the layoffs started with the lockdowns in uh, March 14th. So that's a good trend. And the uh, economists, you know, the guys that say on one hand this and on the other hand that, well, <laughs> anyway, they had expected something like uh, uh, almost uh, 800 90,000 uh, people to be filing. So the fact it came in so low is good. And continuing claims, those are the folks who have been continuing to get benefits for at least two weeks. That dropped by about a million people. So uh, again, a good trend. Um, our friends over in China, their economy grew by 4.9% in the third quarter. Uh, but And it's recovering rather handily. Uh, they uh, put the economy back toward what they call their pre-virus tra trajectory six months uh, after the virus got started over in that part of the world. Now, real estate. Oh, buddy. You remember in 08 and 09 and when the world was ending uh, and no <laughs> and houses weren't worth anything and who's going to buy a house? Oh, that's silly. Welcome to the cyclical markets, folks. This is a prime example of exactly what's going on because the home builders in our country are seeing no chill in demand from the buyers, unlike perhaps what's going on in the neighborhood today. Uh, 
and the industry is more confident than ever. Matter of fact, um, the uh, builder sentiment set a record high for the second month in a row. This is according to NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Market Index. The uh, September and October readings are the first two months has, the index has ever been as high as it is. And so, you know, record low interest rates, this uh, so-called migration to the suburbs, uh, well, that's all good. Uh, but And now sales of existing homes uh, rose higher than expected in September. That, according to the National Association of Realtors, sales up 20.9% annually. That's up for the fourth month, and that's the fastest pace since 2006. And the, well, the story is, the reality is, sales would even be higher if there were more homes available. So you know, the inventory for homes for sale uh, dropped more, again, if you will, at the end of September. And now what's out there, according to uh, the realtors, uh, is just a 2.7-month supply of homes. This is nationally. And that's the lowest since the realtors began tracking it in 1982. So what does that tell you? Uh, it's a seller's market currently, it would appear. And the tight supply is continuing to push prices higher. Those of you out trying to buy are finding that out, I'm sure. The median price of an existing home, and again, this is national, sold in September, was $311,800. That's the median price. That's up almost 15% compared with a year ago this time. That's a new high for this series, and that goes back to 1968. And that was also a new high. This, excuse me, this is also a new high when adjusted for inflation, so it's high. Now, housing starts up for the fifth month in a row in September. That's the highest level since 2007. You kind of get a sense that <laughs> what's going on here, you know? We're at levels we haven't seen either ever or for a really long time. Now, uh, recent reports uh, continue uh, to show the divergence now between single-family construction and multi-unit construction because initially in uh, 08 and 09 and 10 and like that, most of the construction was in the multifamily side, uh, whereas now uh, with the shifts meaning, well, at least currently, away from uh, big cities into the more spacious suburbs, uh, they're cutting back on the multifamily and moving into the single-family. As a matter of fact, if you plot out single-family construction, it's made a full V-shaped recovery and is 7.2% above the high it was in February. And as I said, multi-unit uh, construction down over 42% in the same period. So there you go. Now, GDP. Remember I said a little while ago, we're going to have this week, we'll have the first look at the uh, third quarter GDP figures. Now, as you may recall, the second quarter wasn't too hot. It was probably, what was it, the worst one since the Depression or some such in terms of GDP. Now, uh, the 29th, we're going to get a report that says the GDP is up. Some people are suggesting uh, 33%. Whoa. But see, there's nothing normal about this recession. I mean, it's all government started. It's uh, massive nationwide shutdowns. Uh, caused real G GDP to drop, again, 31% in the second quarter. But uh, right now, we're getting one of those V-shaped recoveries. 
The third quarter will still be one of the largest jumps in output the U.S. has ever experienced, whatever the final number turns out to be. And now here's the catch-22. It's important to remember that even with this big jump back, this V-shaped bounce, uh, if we get a 33% growth rate, the uh, third quarter will still be around 3% lower the GDP, excuse me, will be about 3% lower than it was a year ago. You see, without the shutdowns, they estimate that our economy would have grown 2.5%. So if you want to do that math, it means that the economy is about 5.3% smaller than it would have been without the stupid virus. Now, that gap, that 5.3% gap, is going to take some time to close. And without full reopening... Hint, hint, the economy will likely take until 2023 to get back where it would have been otherwise. And if we do reopen and don't shut down again, it'll happen faster. Now, look, we can look for more growth in the quarters ahead, but uh, don't anticipate anything even remotely close to these kinds of uh, growth practices. I mean, you know, that was one of those down so long looks like up to me situations. So, uh when you get a, a bounce back after things are down so much, yeah, that's pretty normal. But, well, it can't continue. So, shifting gears yet again. Um, you remember I said a little while ago about uh, how the equity funds, people are bailing out of equity funds. Uh, now, I'm not sure. They apparently didn't read the part about long-term investing, but okay. Uh, you know, some of the biggest withdrawals sit in uh, the marketplace for uh, equity mutual funds in some time. And conversely, interestingly, is that flows into U.S.-oriented fixed-income investments have already, this is through September, have already passed the total for all of last year. So you put it, what, by way of numbers, and this is from Bloomberg, inflows to bond funds have totaled $170 billion. It was $154 billion all last year. Uh, people are apparently using corporate ETFs, exchange-traded funds, to bet on the recovery and hedge what could be volatile marketplaces. And, uh, you know, the Fed's additional unwinding of its holdings might spur some distress, but realistically, the bank hasn't given any indications about when it's going to do that, so that's why purchases of these funds continue strong. Now, on the good news, you should consider owning bonds simply because there's no alternative risk-free asset. Now, we're going to talk about what does risk-free mean, but if you want low risk and a decent yield today... You're not going to get it with bonds. And we'll be talking a little bit more after that, excuse me, about that after the break. And so come on back and see what that means in America. There is this conventional wisdom in the United States that when you are moving into or are in retirement, that you have to be, quote unquote, conservative, unquote. I don't know what that means. But if that has defaulted, and this thinking is based in the Depression, quite frankly, but if, if 
this is how you have been raised or how you think, um, you might want to really think hard about that because as you're seeing, the interest rates are not in your favor. I mean, that's it. This is all about math. This isn't a question of values or uh, which is quote-unquote better. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's just that, you know, interest rates where they are now are pushing a lot of folks out on the risk spectrum. You know, the Fed's really into the market more so than ever before. And there are millions of folks out there who not only want but need to earn higher returns on their money. However, they need to be aware of the risks which are different from those associated with stocks. To begin, the good and bad news about bonds is that their interest payments, which typically are quoted annually but paid semi-annually, the interest payments, the time when they come due, and the when you get your money back are all fixed. Now, this is not true in funds, but in individual bonds, okay? So if you own right now a 3% bond, <laughs> you'd be a lucky guy if you could find one of those. But in any case, if you own a 3% bond that came due in 10 years uh, and was currently $1,000 in value, if interest rates went up by 1%, that bond would now be worth $925 because as interest rates rise, the price of existing bonds tends to drop. Now that's a decline in principle of 7.5%, which is more than twice the annual income from that particular issue. That does not come under the heading of fun. See, volatility is something you're going to have to be more comfortable with in the coming years in the markets in general, whether it's stocks or bonds. You simply have to be willing to accept some form of volatility if you want to earn anything on your money. You see, volatility has always been part of the markets, but it's, with interest rates basically, you know, at zero, uh, it's a lot more noticeable, it would appear. But please understand, Volatility is simply changes in price, and it suggests that it may happen rapidly. Okay, but that's still all it is, is changes in price. If it volatiles up, no one is complaining. Okay, so if, it does, if there's no volatility, there's no appreciation. There's no gain. It's part of the deal. So, you know, all of these can lead to some interesting allocation decisions in the years ahead, but... You know, it's, again, not just the stocks where you got to be more comfortable accepting volatility. Let me explain what I mean. There is something, and this just rolls right off the tongue, the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. Yeah. So that's what they, that's kind of a good proxy for metal, many of these, what they call total bond market index funds. Well, its current yield is a whole 1.2% and it has a duration of six years. And again, this is the index. What that tells you is that you could expect to earn 1.2% annually from this aggregate bonds over the next six years. And once again, going back to that uh, inverse relationship, it also means that for every 1% rise in rates, you would s expect to see a loss of 6%. 
nearly five times more than what you're earning. Conversely, if rates were to drop, not too likely, but by 1%, you would see a 6% gain. You know, the, And that's not carved in concrete anywhere, but it's pretty close. I mean, in terms of those relationships, it's called duration, duration risk. And the volatility, you know, it's like crap to whip line. You remember crap to whip? The guy at the end of the line was off into another zip code oftentimes, uh, <laughs> depending upon what kind of surface you were playing on and how fast everybody was going. But, uh, you know, so if you're out at the end of a, a line, if you have an asset, a bond asset that comes due 20 years or more out, uh, you're really going to see what uh, the effect of changes in interest rates. So even if the long-term returns of bonds end up fairly close to the current rates, the path to get there could be pretty rocky, depending upon how rates go between now and then, and nobody knows. But that's why you need to spread your risk. The only answer to volatility is to have your money sit in cash and earn nothing. Well, that's not going to do it. And if you want to earn anything on your money, you got to live with some volatility. Now, uh, just yesterday, the 10-year uh, hit a four-month high of 0.84%. Now, the, the, you know, Treasury has had to increase the amount of debt it's issuing, and another stimulus program would certainly add to all that. So that's a factor helping move rates higher. Uh, and that long-term yield uh, has broken out of what's called its 200-day moving average, which tends to be a, a, an indicator for rates moving up. Now, we're not talking about rates moving to 4 or 5%, but just up. And if the trend is that way, that's how bonds and other fixed income issues will trade in anticipation of which way the rates are going. Mark Malley, uh, excuse me, Matt Malley is chief market strategist at Miller Tabak. He said, uh, well, this week, he said the level we're watching is the 0.9% level, the 0.90% level on the 10-year Treasury. He said a significant move above that would take the 10-year yield above its trend line from late 2018, even though a 10-year yield uh, at or very near 1% would be extremely low historically, it still would signal an important change in the trend. So you have to be aware of that. You know, and I do, in the morning when I do the uh, market reports with Therese and Chris, you, you know, I put the 10-year in there. It's primarily for the real estate folks so they know what the mortgage rates are gonna be tacked to. But, uh, you know, you can be aware of which way that is going. And you can also, of course, check the, uh, market values of your bond funds to see to what extent uh, they're having an effect on this. The, uh, that is to say the rates are having an effect on this. So what does a guy do? That's of course a generic term we all know. What does a guy do to maintain or create some sort of income in lieu of bonds not providing same? Well, there's these things called dividends. Dividends are a share of the profits that a corporation chooses to give to its shareholders. Each one is different. Since 1900, we've had 20 presidents, 12 Republican and 9 Democrat. Now, Bloomberg has a chart uh, that shows how politics don't matter. 
Now this chart, by the way, only goes from 1937, so, but I think it's still good data. From 1937 to the end of last year, if you had invested $10,000 only during the time when a Republican was president into the Dow 30, you would have earned from 37 to 2019 about $35,000. Not so good. If you would invested only in the periods of time when a Democrat was president, you would have made about a hundred grand. That's more, but not exactly uh, something to jump up and down about over the entire period. However, had you kept your focus on meeting your goals, looking ahead, and staying with it regardless of who was president, that $10,000 in that same time frame in the Dow 30 grew to about $1.6 million. Not 35000 not 100000 $1.6 million. Now, even those who are math-challenged can agree that that's probably more. So, from 1965 through mid-last year, Investing while a Democrat was president created a 9.2% annualized return. When a Republican was in charge, the return on the market was 9.1%. Not exactly a large difference. Now, LPL did a study recently. That's a, a brokerage firm of sorts. They found out that with an 87% likelihood of success. Where the S&P was trading three months before the election had been a, has been a pretty good indicator of who, who ultimately won, you know, by party. Uh, if the S&P is higher at the election than it was on uh, 90 days ahead, again, and this would have been the 3rd of August this year, the S&P was trading at, 3294.61. If it's above that, the incumbent has won 87% of the time. If it's below that number, it goes to the challenger. For the record, it was the S&P was at 3483. That's more than 3294. My point is, is it regardless of the winner? you'll be retired or moving forward with your long-term goals. You can't let this kind of noise get in your way. It just, it makes no sense. Peter Lynch, who is the best stock picker ever, he ran the Fidelity Magellan Fund, and you can look it up for his record. He said more money has been lost preparing for a correction than in any correction ever. Because some folks... Well, some misguided folks think they can play the market. In other words, gambling. That really fries my stuff. No. Investing is not gambling because you can manage your risk in investing. There's a, a report from an outfit called Bloomberg that said, as of December 31st, I want to quantify this for you, the percentage win at games in Vegas. Blackjack, you won 48% of the time. Craps 
Poker 46.6, slots at 40, and if you want to put your money in Keno, you got a 23% chance of winning. Well, so in other words, you know you're going to lose before you get there. I don't, I don't, that to me makes no sense whatsoever. But when you're seeing these kinds of results from the Dow, now any rolling three-year period, any rolling three-year period from 1901 through the year end last year, the Dow was up 73.9% over those that entire period. Within that period, any three-year period, the market was up 85.7% of the time. Any five-year period was up 89.2% of the time. Ten-year, 96.1% up. And a 15-year period, 99.9% up. This is... How could you not invest for the long term in the market? You can see that it's not gambling. You're, you're double up. You're more than double your best opportunity in gambling. And this isn't gambling. All you have to do with the market is pick some high quality funds and don't get in your way. Don't get in your own way. You know, here, well, here's looking at it a little differently. As of January of these years, I'm going to give you the uh, Dow levels. In January 1950, the Dow was at 198. January 69, it was 800. January 89, 2753. January 99, 11497. And now it's 28,606. There has been a lot of not good stuff that happened in those interim periods, plus some contentious elections of different types here and there. Uh, we had a couple wars, as you may recall. Um, we had 08 and 09. We had long-term capital. We had all that stuff. And look, the markets still go up. Don't let this political junk get in the way of your retirement. Don't let these goofy people, and I'm not talking about the folks that are running. I'm talking about all these guys running around the edge beating on drums and making noise and all that other stuff, saying, you know, oh, this guy's terrible or this guy's great. Now, we all know in our hearts which of them is really terrible and which is really great. Okay, that's cool. But you have to set up a, uh, 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 an invisible wall, if you will, between those particular thoughts and affecting your judgment. So if you just vote one ticket or another, you can see that your results will be mm, severely uh, limited. But if you just vote and stay with whatever happens, no matter who wins, your long-term returns are likely going to be okay. Now, I'm not going to discount the fact you may have an ulcer or a, <laughs> a low-grade nervous breakdown in the meantime. Okay, but try not to go there. Really, not regarding your money. Now, you remember uh, in, uh, what was it, 2008, uh, after that election, in uh, January, when he was inaugurated, the market tanked immediately. And yet, and yet, uh, when it came time uh, to count the score when the uh, market was all over, his entire term was positive. Go figure. You can't bet on a particular party. You can't bet on the individual.
If you're going to bet on anybody, bet on entrepreneurs in the U.S. Bet on small business owners. These, that's where the growth comes from. This is what makes the country great. Our country, our companies are the most flexible, most responsive, most reactionary of any companies in the world. That's why we're able to stay ahead of things. We, don't, we aren't hidebound in all these old things that the Europeans are, and to a lesser extent, some of the Asians are. Don't let the politics get in your way, folks. Have a great week. Hope it's positive and productive. We'll be back next Saturday with more information and news for you. Thank you very much for listening. I truly do appreciate it, and I hope it's proved helpful for you. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products or subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results and there is always risk associated with investment.